I'm Scott. I'm Bill. And, and we're, we're the, the Trade, Trade Guys. Guys. You're listening to The Trade Guys, a podcast produced by CSIS, where we talk about trade in terms that everyone can understand. I'm H. Andrew Schwartz, and I'm here with Scott Miller and Bill Reinch, the CSIS Trade Guys. In this episode, we're joined by a very special guest. Dr. Joseph Klobber is a senior research fellow at the International Food Policy Research Institute here in Washington, D.C. We discussed why some countries have imposed export restrictions on food and the latest news on meat processing plants. You'll hear all about that and much, much more on this episode of The Trade Guys. The Trade Guys are joined today by Dr. Joseph Klobber, who is Senior Research Fellow at the International Food Policy Research Institute in Washington. Prior to joining the Food Policy Research Institute, Dr. Glauber spent over 30 years at the U.S. Department of Agriculture, including as Chief Economist from 2008 to 2014. So, Dr. Glauber, we want to welcome you to the Trade Guys. We're going to talk about agriculture and food shortages. You know, these are some really difficult issues. So let's start it out right away. Why have some countries imposed export restrictions on foodstuffs in the wake of a public health crisis? Well, I mean, obviously, food's always a really sensitive issue. I think normally when you see these food restrictions, they're based on concerns about domestic food availability. Oftentimes, that translates to ensuring that urban population has ample supplies. And sometimes it's motivated over concerns for political stability. So you may see a government say, well, we want to keep all the people in the cities happy, so let's ban exports, make sure there's ample food. I think, you know, based on past experiences, those concerns are many, more often than not, way overblown and based on poor information about supply availability and other things. And really, the problem is once exporting countries take such actions, it may actually exacerbate available supplies on world markets and really become a self-fulfilling prophecy. So if a big exporting country says, well, we got to keep all that, that grain here in the country, let's put on an export ban. Then you find on the other side, importing countries are saying, gee, we can't get from that country, so we better start buying grain. And you get into this sort of panic buying mode. And from there, uh, you may have other exporting countries say, hey, prices are really going up, we better put export bans. We saw that happen in 2007-8 when there were large wheat exporters like Argentina and Russia uh, and Ukraine put on export bans, rice exporters like China and Vietnam and, and India put on rice bans, and they really just contributed to enormous price volatility during that period of time, at a time when supplies were tight, but there were ample supplies out there. Scott, I want you to jump in here. Scott knows a lot about agriculture. He grew up farming with his grandfather, and he's represented companies that you know work in the, in the ag space. Scott, what, what do you think about all this? Well, look, look export uh, restrictions are usually a bad idea, and it's one of the reasons they're disciplined uh, in both industrial goods and agricultural products in all our trade agreements. But there's also uh, one, of, one of the things that keeps coming up is that our supply systems, the, the supply chains that feed us all, were built for a steady state. And when we started to shut things down and, and move to quarantine and, the, and also the disease spread, uh, all of a sudden, the steady state was disrupted in 
very surprising ways. So uh, there's some things going on in the domestic food supply chain as well as the international one, particularly the protein chains. Uh, and uh, that, so that's what's interested me. Uh, obviously, there was a story a few weeks back about a Smithfield plant in uh, South Dakota, uh, which had an outbreak of COVID-19 and had to remove itself. Now, it's a very large plant, so it, it was a big disruption to the pork supply. Uh, in addition, yesterday there was news about the president invoking the Defense Production Act for beef. And beef is a, just a, an even odder set of circumstances because, because beef is graded and because the grades have contracts. So, for instance, all, the, all USDA Prime, a lot of USDA Prime is contracted for steakhouses because that's what they're, they're serving at, uh, you know, the Capitol Grill or whatever. Now, all the steakhouses are closed. So Got to give a shout out to the Palm. Can't talk yes, about the, great steakhouses. Same, same story. Palm. And so the, the, the amounts that are available are, are different than what the contracts were, were based upon. And as, as Bill's pointed out in the past, one of the features of the Defense Production Act is that it allows producers who are under the act uh, to modify contracts without penalty. There's a lot going on. And Joe, if you can help us unpack that. You've raised really two separate issues. One is, is the problem in meatpacking plants. And, and we've had uh, a number of outbreaks of COVID-19 in meatpacking mm -hmm. plants, which have caused their closure. There are some estimates as much as 25 to 30 percent of pork slaughtering capacity right now is offline because of plant closure. So it's not just the Smithfield plant. It's a lot of major pork processors, some big beef processing plants and, and poultry operations. So you're talking about a, a loss of slaughter capacity and what that tends to do, obviously, is because there's less meat coming off those lines that potentially will result in, in higher meat prices. I think people are looking for a bump up in the retail prices for most meats. And it backs up supplies at the farm level. So prices at the farm level really fall. And in some cases, if you have some beef cattle, you can put those out on pasture. You don't have to bring them necessarily to the feedlot right away. But with a the hog, there's almost very little room to work. And so what you are beginning to see is talk about depopulating poultry houses, uh, hog operations, and depopulating, of course, is a nice word for euthanizing those animals. So it's a classic bottleneck. It's a classic bottleneck. And those, those costs are being absorbed at either end of the chain, right? Yeah. The supply can't reach the demand. Right. Now, you mentioned another issue, though, that's affecting agriculture at the same time, is that, and that's the fact that 50% of Americans prior to, or 50% of uh, household expenditures are, for food are spent out of the house. So, mm -hmm. you know, people spending 50% of those food dollars in restaurants all of a sudden can't go to restaurants. And, uh, I mean, all you have to do is go to anyone's Instagram feed or you, you see people posting pictures of all the food they're making. Uh, but, but in fact, that's led to some pretty big dislocations. You're finding shortages in stores because people are, are going to the grocery store far more than they were going to uh, previously or buying far more food than they were previously. And the fact that the food that's going into the food service industry, so the restaurants and schools and, and large institution uses, they're packaged very, very differently than um, they are, uh, you know, at, at your typical grocery store. So you see big slabs of beef, you have, you know, and meats, you have canned goods in very large cans. They aren't labeled like, I mean, they're the same, they're the exact same 
a vegetable or tomatoes or whatever that you'll find on a grocery store, but they don't, they aren't required to be labeled. They don't have a barcode on them. So it's not a, an easy transformation just to say, well, we're going to take that out of this warehouse that was bound for some school system and put it onto the shelf at Costco or a shelf at uh, Safeway. So that's the other big thing is there's a lot of food supply out there. It's just not getting the distribution system just isn't set up to move, you know, from one outlet to another very easily. I want to bring Bill in for a second because the meat story has really started to take off as a political story as well. Bill, what do you think about what happened yesterday with the president invoking the DPA with meatpacking plants? I've I've heard from a lot of people, you know, yelling that this could really hurt people, kill people, etc. I mean, really extreme reactions to this. First, let me make a comment on the on the last exchange. My wife ran into this personally on uh, Friday because she uh, spends time in a food pantry in in Montgomery County, and uh, they were happy to discover that five guys had donated. Uh, 50 pound bags of potatoes uh, because they're not selling as many fries as they used to, but they're 50 pound bags. You know, these are not uh, what you're going to get, what the average consumer is going to buy in a grocery store. It's great for a food pantry because they can open the bag and pass these things out, but it's not, it, it's a, it's a kind of supply chain problem that we're talking about on the open reopening the plants. Yeah. You know, I can't help but think that this is going to, this is going to end badly. And I'm worried about it. At one level, you see the logic. You want to maintain the supply chain. And it's, uh, we've just been talking about uh, all the things that, that can go wrong. At the same time, if you send people back in uh, who are sick or send them back without adequate protection, and that's been an issue that's been raised by the workers in a number of these plants, uh, you're simply asking for the whole thing to happen again. Uh, and you're asking for further shutdowns and more, pay, more victims. Uh, and these are going to be poor. Uh, these are going to be poor people. These are going to be immigrants in many of these plants. They live near the plant. They live in you know you're creating hotspots, basically. And uh, I think that puts us in a, a situation where it's you're just going to make uh, everything worse, prolong the difficulty. The plants are going to have to shut back down because they won't have enough workers. And uh, this goes back to what Joe began with, which is what we've talked about last week too, which is the word panic. Uh, a lot of this is panic-induced. People don't think they're going to be able to get their ribs next week, so they go out and buy, you know, 10 pounds of them this week. It's the same It's the toilet paper problem. And normally what happens is these things roll on, panic subsides, and some sense of normality returns. But, you know, if you keep repeating the panic with new closings and new crises, uh, you're just prolonging the recovery and prolonging the misery of all these workers that are not going to be making any money. Joe, what do you think about the president invoking the DPA on the meat plants? Well, I, I would echo actually a lot of what Bill just said. I think the, the, the real problem is how to address the underlying issue. Uh, you have workers working in very close proximity to one another. These are very chilled plants where the, the room temperature is kept very low, which is conducive to the virus. Uh, it's very humid. And as Bill said, these aren't just you know, workers in close proximity, they are also oftentimes people who are living in very closely in their own communities. Uh, so sharing apartments and, and socializing and other things. And, you know, you look at that Smithfield plant, I haven't looked at the numbers recently, but at one time that was more than half the number of COVID cases in, in South Dakota. So these are real big hotspots. 
And I think that without addressing the underlying issue, and I, I understand that there, you know, the plants are working with the government to try to bring in, you know, face masks and, and protective shields and other things, but you're really talking about to really do it effectively, you're going to have to drop line speed and other things that, that uh, you know, how fast the beef or pork or poultry get processed. And so I think unless those concerns are addressed in the, in the instance of COVID-19 drop and people feel safe that they're able to go back to work, I think you, you'll have a labor issue where you really are going to have workers who are worried about their safety if they think that it's, you know, continues to be a place where they could potentially catch COVID-19. And I might add, I mean, these are semi-skilled jobs. You, you can't just take someone off the street and give them a knife and tell them to get to work, chop it up uh, poultry. Uh, so this is a, a labor supply that has been a very important component of the processing industry and how the processing industry has grown over the last 20 years and to be these large, large packing plants. And so I, you know, I think, uh, again, just echoing what Bill said, uh, you're going to have to address that underlying issue, I think, really before you see this industry get back on its feet. Scott Miller, how critical do you, of an issue do you think this is? Well, certainly the, the thing that's hardest to change about all this is the scale that's been created in the processing industry. I mean, to go and, and build the, the, the sort of the, the physical structure that existed 25 years ago, which were many more but smaller facilities, and in fact, a lot of local butchering that happened 25 years ago is not going to happen overnight. It's very difficult to unwind. Also, those scale production facilities, whether it's beef or pork or poultry, have had a major consumer benefit, which is lower prices all around. So, so there's, a, there's one of these things as we try to make these supply chains more resilient and able to manage the variation that they're forced to deal with, that all this, all this requires moving away from essentially a very efficient, low-cost structure and ultimately you get higher food prices. So, so this is going to take a little, I, I think, I don't think there's any near-term way to work this out other than uh, to try to try to get through it. But, uh, but any solution that makes this, makes the chain more resilient will probably make it higher cost as well. So it's, there, there are not a lot of easy trade-offs. So how are these policies going to impact global food prices and trade? Again, I think at the consumer level, it increases them. Certainly at the producer level, it's going to decrease prices. And, and I think that's going to have a longer term impact, obviously, because if the prices, low prices are sustained for a long time, you'll have some people who are going to cut supplies over the longer run. You'll see those prices start to rise again. But in the near term, it's going to short supply for consumers. You know, I think we'll see that showing up in supermarkets over the next few weeks in line with what was said earlier. I've seen two or three newspaper articles just saying, oh boy, there's the coming shortage in meats. Well, I agree. All that's going to do is create some uh, panic buying uh, over the next few days. Joe, you make a good point that the, this higher prices in the store, at the same time, you may have lower prices to producers. And, and then they leave the business or, you know, do something else. So it's, a, it's, a, it's an odd inversion of, of uh, markets because of the, the where the bottleneck is. I think my daughter-in-law would say this is a good time for everybody to become a vegetarian um, because we don't have a broccoli crisis. But I suppose in theory, um, the same thing could happen in the fields. If you've got lots of people in yeah. close proximity picking tomatoes, we could see this uh, spread. It's not just meat. No, that's right. I mean, I think if you look at, at for most field cro uh, row crop agriculture, so you think corn, soybeans, wheat, 
you know, you, you don't need very many people to, to plant, harvest, and move that to market. Fruit and vegetable production is quite a different thing. And you have very similar circumstances in the sense that you have the field workers in those operations are there for a short period of time for given production processes like harvest time. And there may be a lot of people living in very cramped quarters. And so I think there is a lot of concern about outbreak of COVID-19. And then the other issue, of course, is the fact that some of the containment practices, you know, we've, we've closed borders and other things. So movement of labor is also an issue. We have a guest worker program for agriculture, the so-called H2A program, that has seen an increase in recent years. So there's a lot of workers. The government's given some flexibility to allow those workers, instead of going back home immediately, to work in other operations. So they're trying to move those laborers around. But at the end of the day, it also could become hot spots. And we have seen some anecdotal stories from Florida and elsewhere where some of those labor camps, the instance of COVID-19 has been fairly high. And also the fact that back to the earlier issue, we do see where a lot of those fruit and vegetable producers aren't able to move produce to the food industry side of the food market because that side has evaporated and instead are destroying and plowing under uh, vegetables. I, I want to go back to something that, that, that Scott said. Joe, think about long-term for, for a moment. What we're talking about in terms of the way supply chains are going to evolve um, is the same conversation we've had previously about industrial supply chains. You know, As you begin to look at resiliency and redundancy, you're going to do things that are higher cost and you're going to do things that are more localized and more fragmented because uh, you're going to, you, you know, the, the very large, the large, very large scale plants are vulnerable for all the reasons you said. How do you see agriculture changing in, in the United States over the long term? I mean, are, are we going to have, what are going to, what's going to happen to Smithfield like plants? Are they going to reopen and everything's going to be fine? Or is this going to be a kind of a permanent devolution back to the system we had 20, 30 years ago. I don't think it will be that. I don't think we'll devolve back into a local markets and small packing plants. I think the efficiencies are just too great. I think there will be a lot more effort put into biosecurity things. And I suspect that what we'll see is a little more, a lot more mechanization as it moves on to the degree that you can mechanize certain processes. Now, granted, I think that the food industry in particular has been very, very productive. Productivity has been very high generally. And we've seen, you know, a lot of labor move out, not just out out of agriculture, but also food processing because of those sorts of efficiencies. So I would expect that to continue at least. But I do think, you know, certainly this is going to change, I think, biosecurity methods and other sorts of things at these points of agglomeration where you see, you know, a lot of of product coming through one particular bottleneck where there's a lot of labor involved. I think there will be a lot of efforts to try to make sure that those those lines are kept open uh, to the degree possible. Let me ask you this, all of you. Are some countries more vulnerable than others to food shortages due to trade? I'd be happy to start with that. Absolutely. I mean, you have a lot of countries that just don't produce enough agriculture to meet their domestic needs. I mean, just take, for example, some of the countries in the Mideast. And and these are countries like Egypt that have very large populations. And you look at their diets, they are dominated by wheat. I had a, was on a conference just the other day and and we were talking about Lebanon. Lebanon had 40% of the calories 
of the average Lebanese household comes from wheat, 40%. And you're talking about a country that imports 90% of the wheat that's consumed in the country. And of the imports, 90% come from the Russia and Ukraine. So you're really talking at the end of the day, 30% of those calories consumed in the households in, in Lebanon are coming from two countries. So the vulnerability issues there, you can, you can understand. And other countries, it, it differs. I mean, the U.S., you know, we import a lot of food. You know, we're one of the largest importers in the world, as is the European Union. But it's essentially counter-seasonal, uh, what enables us to have fruits and vegetables year-round, not really a food security issue per se. Bill, Scott? Well, look, Joe did a great job of summarizing the global situation. I think here in the United States, we, we are we are not in a, in a problem when it comes to food security, but the variety we've become accustomed to may change in all this. I mean, I'm old enough to remember when you had strawberries uh, when, in grocery stores when they were in season, you know, which was two or three months a year, and in, at least in Ohio. I remember strawberries because they, they were around the time of my birthday. Okay. And so, uh, but now you have them every day. Okay, and it's this kind of variety that I think we've become accustomed to and has, has you know, it, it, it's, it's great for our lifestyles and it's great for our health. And, but it, you, you don't have it without trade and you don't have it without the kinds of very sophisticated planning for, for the, the fresh products that are in the store. Uh, so that, that, could, that could be harder to maintain, particularly if, if trade restraints continue. So should the average American be more concerned about foreign export restrictions or disruptions to the domestic food supply chain? I say the latter. I think it's domestic food supply. And just for what Scott was saying, I think, yes, we do get availability of these things year-round, and that's been very, very important for nutrition and other things, but it's really the domestic food supply disruptions, which would be far more concerned. I, I think we also need to worry longer term about the autarky trap, which is, comes up all the time, and you're seeing this in medical areas too. You know, the, the people who say, X, whatever it is, drugs, uh, masks, pork, uh, these are critical items. We have to make these things ourselves. There's a French politician who, who made the news a couple of weeks ago when he said, you know, French people should eat things that are grown in France, produced in France, which is, you know, good for the cheese people, but not everything in, that people eat is grown in France. Not everything that people eat in the United States is grown in the United States. If you start going down that road, you know, what you end up is dividing the world up into, into hundreds of non-competitive pieces. Uh, you raise prices, you disrupt supply chains, and you deny consumers a lot of things that they want. Now, you know, we're not there yet. As I said, a lot of this is panic-induced. And if, if you've got good leadership uh, in government, it tends to go away uh, as, the, as the crisis subsides. I'm not sure we've got good leadership right now, which is, which is one story, but it is a supply chain problem here domestically. But we also need to keep reminding ourselves that, you know, if we start down the road of arguing that 100% of what we eat needs to be produced in the United States, uh, we're going to end up with a lot of problems. That logically takes you back to the village economy. And the village economy was fine, except life then was nasty, brutish, and short. Yeah. And uh, so we've gained a lot by, uh, by the, the, the way we produce and, and consume and it's trade. It's getting brutal here stuff. in the village of Bethesda, Maryland. No kidding. <laughs> <laughs> well, one thing I would say is I, we've been looking at, at countries talking about export restrictions. And uh, I was surprised to see earlier this week 
uh, there was a call for uh, putting on export restrictions here in the U.S. for meat products. Uh, I mean, you just never would have thought of that. It's funny to me because you, typically what we export overseas are a lot of the cuts that consumers here don't want. So, you know, you look at, at, at chickens, you know, for the most part, or is boneless breasts is what we've been selling here to, you know, almost almost no one you know, buys a chicken with a bone in it these days, but all those other pizzas and dark meats and other things, they go out the door to, you know, markets in the Far East and other places that value them and, and are willing to pay money for them. So. Well, I'll tell you what, if there's not enough chicken to make Popeye's chicken sandwich, uh, there's going to be riots. Same with uh, Chick-fil-A. Man, that's no joke. People take that stuff seriously. Did you see the, uh, the, uh, the, the pictures this morning in the paper that uh, you know, New Zealand is gradually reopening. And the, the main thing that happened the first day is there were long lines outside of McDonald's and KFC. People wanted their fast food. Well, you know, the, the New Zealanders try to be good Americans as much as they can. The more interesting story, maybe Joe has a comment on this, is one that, that, uh, that Jack sent us yesterday about the, the potato crisis in Belgium. Uh, where they have the reverse problem. They have too many potatoes. So they're encouraging people to eat French fries twice a week. I could be, I could do that. Twice a week. I, I think this is a good idea. I think Me too. We make a sympathetic gesture here in the United States. And, you know, every, twice a week we should be having fries too. It also benefits the egg industry there with all the mayonnaise that they would be eating with uh, those <laughs> fries. So. Scott, French fries are not part of our diet, and there's no way my wife is going to let me eat French fries twice a week. But, like, maybe we could, like, wage a lobbying effort for just, like, a, a one-week respite or something. Well, it's one of those things. You do what you have to do when you're in, in quarantine. Uh, my, my daughter is home with us, and she's, she likes baking. So we've been baking stuff, and uh, it's, uh, it's all on the QT here in uh, Shea Miller. But, uh, but it's, uh, it's happening, and then uh, sooner or later we'll be done with this. Well, I'll be back on the wagon. <laughs> yeah, I hear you. Um, gentlemen, this has been a fascinating discussion. Joe, thank you for all these great insights. We'd love to have you back as this you know, progresses because I suspect that this isn't going to unwind for a while and the repercussions that we're feeling now are going to continue and we're going to need to continue to talk about this. No, absolutely. Uh, we look forward to it. Thanks so much, guys. Until next week. To our listeners, if you have a question for the Trade Guys, write us at tradeguys at csis.org. That's tradeguys at csis.org. We'll read some of your emails and have the Trade Guys react to it. We're also now on Spotify, so you can find us there when you're listening to the Rolling Stones or you're listening to Tom Petty or whatever you're listening to. Thank you, Trade Guys. Thank you. You've been listening to The Trade Guys, a CSIS podcast.